there. <laughs> if y'all laugh, he's gonna do it again, so the important thing is not to laugh. <laughs> oh yeah, it's his birthday, so I guess he Hey, that's right, happy birthday, Matt. It is his birthday. What are you, 27? Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, today we are uh, going to continue our study in Ephesians. And if you'll bear with me, we are going to retrace our steps through uh, some of the, the, the section that we looked at for the last couple weeks, actually. We're going we're gonna to recover this, do another pass through it. Uh, this morning, my daughter Janelle is uh, joining me, and we're going to have a discussion about this passage that uh, deals with family relationships. And as I said, Janelle is my daughter. If you don't know uh, or you haven't seen her around here, she joined the ministry team. Uh, well, she started teaching middle school kids uh, here back in 2007, uh, and then she moved on to be on staff here as a children's church pastor. And then over the last few years, her ministry has expanded to include being uh, an administrative pastor uh, here. So, Janelle, you and I <laughs> have had some fascinating conversations uh, about this passage. And uh, I know that you've had to, to think through this passage that we're dealing with as, as, a, as a wife and a mother and, and put some thought into this. And I'd love to hear your uh, thoughts on that. Just real quick. Uh, yeah. Mark, this is so boomy. It's, it's actually um, making me so afraid to be here right now. Uh, check, check. How's that? Is that better? Can you still hear me? Okay, cool. Awesome. Right, we're good. Yeah, uh, this is an interesting passage because, I mean, do we need to say what it is? I guess we'll... It's going to be Galatians. It's here up on the screen. Ephesians. It'll be dealing with husbands and wives and children uh, if, you, if you haven't been here it's for like the last couple weeks. Like wives submit to your husbands and, and things like that. And it's, it's an interesting passage because... I, as a female, always wondered how far do I take this interpretation of scripture? How far do I go? Because it tells wives to submit to their husbands. And that was something that I always viewed as like a submissive, more like servant mentality. I know the last few weeks you've been explaining that that word doesn't mean what we think it means. It's like princess bride, like you keep using that word, but it's not, <laughs> doesn't mean what <laughs> you think mean it means. What you think it means. So, but without those last few weeks, I always viewed it as that, which is where like, if we got in an argument, it, whatever he says as my husband goes, like he wins because that's what the Bible says is my version to submit to him. Um, that being said, <laughs> yeah, he's like, interesting, the Bible says that, huh? <laughs> I think anybody that knows Matt and I <laughs> uh, probably knows that's not exactly how that's lived out in our dynamic or relationship. Bless his and my heart. Um, but, uh, that's never really been how a relationship worked. Not that it's a reversal where <clears throat> I expect him to submit to me and now I'm the one in charge, but it's something where our dynamic is different than that, where we're the, different than what's described in these verses, where we learn each other's strengths and we build our relationship based on that and, and change our home and lives according to those strengths. But to be honest, because of these verses, there was always a nagging part of me that was worried my life wasn't lining up with scripture the way it was supposed to be because our home does, does not look like that, if I'm going to be honest and vulnerable here with everybody. And so I think that when I think of these verses, the, the emotion that I associate with it would be shame because I'm, I'm nervous that other people are going to see how our lives are really lived out and feel like that's not right or that's not matching the Bible. And so I, I guess that's kind of my association with these verses. Okay. And so that shame is from God, and okay. we're here to set you straight. Perfect. That's why Thank you're you. Up here today. No. 
No, it's actually that, that, it's that very pressure that we want to alleviate from you or from anybody else uh, who may feel that. Uh, if you've got a Bible with you and you want to follow along with this, you'll want to go to Ephesians chapter 5 uh, at this time. Over the last couple of weeks, we've followed a progression of thought. I have maintained that verse 21 of chapter 5 is the thematic header for the whole section that covers verses 21 through chapter 5, verse 9. And verse 21 challenges us to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And we looked at that word in the Greek, hupotasso. And it means to arrange ourselves as under or lower than someone else. And I connected that with Paul's instructions in Philippians chapter 2, where we're to think of others as greater than ourselves. That is to live with humble service towards the other, towards our fellow person as the goal in a relationship. And then we looked at how Paul structured his instructions in verse 22 and following, and we pointed out last week how it is an exact mirror of the ancient Roman household code, where the man was the patriarch who ruled over his wife and his children and his slaves. And many have said, and this is the way I was taught, it's the way I had even taught it for many years, that this was then representative of God's divine order for the home. And it was presented kind of like this to me oftentimes, the, you know, Christ and the husband and, the, and, you know, in that sort of hierarchical order. It's my belief that Paul was not laying out God's divine order for the home, but he was using the structure of the ancient Roman household code as a means of presenting the way that followers of Christ can reflect his values into that structure, into the existing structure. Which brings us today, so if Paul was not describing the, the intended structure for the family, what is he communicating here? What are these verses trying to say to us? And if Paul is not saying that this is the perfect structure, then what is the perfect structure? What is the intended structure that Paul has in mind for family? Yeah, uh, Paul, Paul partitioned this section uh, according to the Roman structure of the household code. We went over that. You know, if, 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 if you didn't get a chance to be here last week, we have those teachings online. I really recommend you go back and listen to them because it helps lay the foundation for what we're saying here. But we pointed out last week, he elevated those that he spoke to that were supposed to be inferior within that culture. He elevated them by speaking them to them directly as equals. He spoke to wives as equals. He spoke to children as equals. He spoke to, to slaves the same way. Paul is basically setting up something that from the outside looks like every other house on the block. But when you go inside, all of our expectations are scrambled in the way that it's laid out in, in there. So you're saying that it, it, what he's describing looks like every other house on the block and that on the outside, this matches the societal order and the way things were done at that time. But yeah. on the inside, he's telling and encouraging people to interact differently with one another than what was normally expected. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it, 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 was, it was within that accepted structure of the Roman household code that Paul is then inserting these values of the kingdom of God, the values of Christ. Paul, see, the thing that we got to remember is that unlike our world today, Paul was not a cultural warrior. He knew very well he had a limited impact on the culture around him. He didn't directly attack practices like slavery, which we talked about last week. Instead, 
He challenged the ideologies behind those practices, and he expected us as Christians to put it together, to put together what these ideologies lead to then, how life and, and society and all of these things are supposed to look, to reflect that into the world. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the parts of this that are still parallel to our present world of husbands and wives and children, and, and we're going to consider what Paul says to them and how we can find application for our own lives as 21st century people. So we're going to begin where Paul does uh, with the wives. So we're going to begin reading in verse 21 and read through verse 24. Are you leaving? Or? Oh, okay. I'm, I'm bored. Bye. <laughs> we get to this part and you're <laughs> this, done. This wasn't as interesting as I thought. No, I'm just kidding. I just need to move my chair. Okay. He says, and further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the header of all of this. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He's the savior of the body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. Straightforward. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so in reading these verses, again, I can understand why you would want to take three Sundays to break them down because, <laughs> I mean, especially if they're going to be meaning something different than what's on the surface. Because surface reading, this seems pretty straightforward. Jesus Christ is our example, and husbands follow that example as our leader, and husbands follow that example as leaders in the home. Um, so I'm curious where you're going to go with this. <laughs> but also for the last two weeks, you've been you know, as I said, laying down the groundwork for a different interpretation. And I understand wanting to take your time in explaining why, that it's not just you rearranging the meaning of this to benefit you or to benefit me, but to, or trying to rewrite scripture in some way. No, exactly. And that's the whole thing. And this is the thing, guys, that there are two dangers when it comes to the scriptures. One, is, one danger is that we look at it and say, there it is, face value, we'll take it and start applying that without thinking about either the ramifications or, or, you know, how tenable it is or whether or not it connects to the rest of Scripture, whether or not it's even consistent with that. We see something on the surface, we take it, you know, it's that old phrase, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, which is a terrible phrase. I, I, it just, it, because there's a lot of things that the Scriptures say that we've got to think through and not just, you know, we're not supposed to be going out and conquering Canaanites anymore, folks, uh, in case you don't know. So, but the other danger is to just go in there and start changing everything willy-nilly to, to suit our own modern worldview and make this more accessible. So we need to take the time to dig into this, to really look at what it is that Paul is saying here so that we can get the, the meaning, the deeper meaning of what it is that he's communicating in this. And, and it's far deeper than I ever, ever realized. Uh, there's some concepts that we've got to examine in this section. And, and the first is that the husband is described as the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. So we would say being described as the head of the household as a metaphor, right? Because he's not saying, like, cut off the husband's head. Correct. I would hope not. <laughs> okay, good. But again, there's that whole thing. But go ahead. Okay, yeah. so we know that this is a metaphor. It's clearly a metaphor. And, and I feel like the obvious interpretation for this metaphor would be the person in charge, like the head of the household would represent somebody who's in leadership there, the leader. Okay, so the, the, the word in the Greek for head is kaphale, and, and it literally means this thing right up here, the thing that sits on top of your shoulders. Uh, 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 so you're right, the word is being employed metaphorically, and, and so what we have to do then is decide what's the metaphor that's being employed here. What is Paul trying to get across? Now, in English, 
we make the assumption that the usage of this has to do with authority and, and, and leadership. We say, well, it's the head of something. That means it's... But even in English, we use that word differently. If we talk about the head of a river, we're not talking about the part of the river that tells the other parts of the river what to do. What are we talking about? We're talking about the, the source of it, the spring from which the, the river comes. And the same is going to be true in the Greek usage of this metaphor. There are three main metaphoric uses for this word in antiquity. One is as a leader and authority. The other is as source, like the spring of a river. And the other is of preeminence, the thing most visible, the thing most obvious that's, that's there. Uh, so how is it being used here? How is Paul employing this metaphor? What, what is he saying? Now, the debates about that, I think the debates about that have been going on ever since Paul wrote this. Uh, it's, there's, the arguments are multitudinous, and the oceans of ink have been spilled in trying to promote one argument over the other. And if I were to be thoroughly honest with you, I'll read one argument, and I'll say, oh, that makes perfect sense. That's great. And I'll read the next argument. Oh, that makes perfect sense. I agree with that. And I read the third argument. Oh, there it is. I agree with that. They all actually are very reasonable. They all really make a lot of sense to me. Well, then how do you decide which metaphor to pick as like Paul, that Paul is employing? Like, how do you decide one? Because I feel like based on what you decide affects a lot of things and affects how like a lot of family homes are structured. See, and so here's the thing. <laughs> I think that when we try to dial in Paul's exact metaphor for this, we're on our way to missing the point. Because whether he's talking about authority or source or preeminence, he is going to radically rearrange the practice of whatever that metaphor is. What he describes in practice is different. It scrambles every concept we have of authority, or source or preeminence uh, as we get into that. So you're saying even if, like, because if you're just, like, picking one out of the hat, <laughs> meaning, and if, and if we say, okay, the, the metaphor means head of the household, it means leader and authority, you're saying even if that's what it means as, as the man being the one in charge, you're saying Paul's going to reveal a completely different way to live that authority out. That's right. That's Which is kind of what Jesus did, right? Like he was constantly talking yeah. about authority and turning everything upside down with what we thought it meant. Yeah. I mean, it, it actually reminds us immediately of Jesus and how he was going about these things. The metaphor of head was a socioeconomic reality for the ancient Roman world. A young man, his family would... would uh, arrange a marriage for him and they would find a young woman and he would marry her she would come into his home he would then be her provider and he would be the representation of that family in other words when you thought of that family you thought of this young man and as he grows and goes through life he becomes the representation uh, of that family so i believe there's a level of cultural relativity being employed here paul's acknowledging this is the way things are this is the way things are working in our world but then he addresses the wife directly in this passage, elevating her to an equal status as her husband. Like I said, in the ancient Roman world, if you thought of the family's household, you thought of that man who was out there. Paul bypasses him and goes directly to the, to the woman who's there in, you know, hearing this. This was just unheard of in the ancient Roman world. So, so you're saying just simply by acknowledging that women exist and talking to them directly, that's him elevating their status. Yeah. And like equal footing. Yeah. That's cool. So imagine, imagine being in a house church, it's, you know, in the ancient world. And, and somebody comes in to read this letter 
that Paul is writing to, to everybody, and they're going through it, and we get to this family dynamic here, and he's going to address the, the family, and who does he speak to? The women. Yeah, how would that feel? I yeah, mean, so the first time, normally, you're, you're used to listening to these letters being only addressed to the men, and all of a sudden, you're... You're included included. in the conversation. You're brought up into this. Uh, I just, you know, uh, so by incorporating Christ's place as the head, uh, it's a callback to verse 21 when he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, Christ being the, the most important. And remember, submit, as we went over, we went over this a lot last week, does not mean subjection to authority, but it's a voluntarily setting aside my agenda, my well-being, my interest, putting that aside in order to serve the well-being and interests of the other. So when Paul says to wives, submit to your husbands and everything, we understand he's not saying you got to do whatever the old man says. What, what is he saying? Okay, so this, these verses start with Paul giving an example or telling us to use Jesus as our example for how we serve one another. And then he goes down the list expanding on that, and he's telling women to serve their husbands, but you're saying it's not a blind submission of whatever you say goes, but that we're learning that it's about respect and selflessness. Right, exactly. And we'll see, as this unfolds here, that is meant to be reciprocal. In other words, sacrificial service is the biblical ideal in any relationship that we're involved in. Sacrificial service is what we're called to. When Jesus was just talking to his disciples, he says, he said, take, he didn't, he didn't say take it easy. He said, take something up. What? Take up your cross. This is emblematic of the idea of this sacrificial love, sacrificial service for people. So it's about the ideal, and it's about being intentional about our care for the other person, for the care for our partner and our spouse, that we don't wake up every morning just to think about what my needs are and make sure that they're met, but we take stock in our spouse's needs and consider what would be helpful and loving to them as well. Yeah, yeah. Which I guess that does bring me to a scenario that I can picture a little better in terms of like who Paul is writing to in the Roman church or the Roman times, because it would be a self-centered culture. But I think that that also applies to today. I don't think (laughs) that we've grown beyond, we've grown beyond that. (laughs) We're so much more mature. Um, <laughs> so, so he's describing, he's talking to a culture where the thought is, which, I, yeah, like I said, applies to us, which is my happiness is the greatest good. And as long as I'm happy or I'm getting what I want out of the situation, it doesn't matter who I harm or hurt along the way, as long as my needs are met. And That's so the attitude. I can see here where Paul is encouraging a different way to live, a different way to structure our lives that it doesn't, that we no longer say, you know, the greatest good is myself. We say the greatest good is Jesus, and I show my love for him by loving and serving everyone around me. That's it. That's it. Exactly. He's saying that within the Roman household code, the, the, the social structure that was in place, firmly in place, embedded into the empire, the, the, the wives represent Christ's values by voluntarily and, and self-sacrificially looking to the husband's needs, not just their own interests, but this is a principle and as a principle, then, it transcends cultures and generations and even immediate structure. It applies across the board in all of our relational structures. And here's the thing. The willing, the willing sacrifice of self-interest is what's important in this. Because remember, ancient Rome, in the ancient Roman world, a woman didn't have a choice 
in this. It was, it was by law she was going to submit to whatever the husband says. It was, it was built into this. And, and so you can imagine the kind of resentment or manipulation or whatever would result from that, trying to work around that because I have no choices. This is the only way I can preserve myself. Paul is calling the women in this to do this self-sacrificially, even within this structure that could be to their disadvantage, being willing to represent the reality of, of Christ that way. So often, I'm going to go on a side here, but so often young couples will get together and they're going to get married and, and they'll express what it is, you know, why they want to marry this person. It's because, well, you know, this person makes me feel this way or whatever. They'll express all the ways in which they're attracted to the person. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's, a, you know, that's how we're built. We're attracted. We like the way the person makes us feel. But so often then the relationship gets built around that initial attraction, and then we spend all this time trying to get the other person to provide that same feeling that we had at the outset. And then we start cajoling or manipulating or commanding or withdrawing or all the other ways in which we game each other as human beings instead of doing what Paul said here, rising to this challenge to, to lay down our lives, to sacrificially love the other person. And if both parties in a relationship, is there to meet the need of the other, then needs actually get met. We can actually st stop wasting all the time on the games and everything like that. Real quick, I turn those air conditioners it's down so way cold. too far. That's my, that's the guy thing, I think. Uh, they said turn it down, and I put it down to 65. That's probably too low. Oh my gosh. <laughs> my hands it are going sense numb. to me. <laughs> I was like, don't let them see you shivering up here. <laughs> I'm glad we can be honest about that. <laughs> well, I was watching everybody else shiver, so I was thinking, I actually feel great, but, uh, you know, that's one of those things. Uh, you know, it makes me, th yeah, so <laughs> that's right. <laughs> it kind of makes me think of like at our house, you know, we kind of divide up the chores and who's doing what. And like, I mainly do the dishes. My husband, Matt, mainly does the laundry, but it's one of those things that if I'm working, I'll come home most days and he's done the dishes for me, even though it's not his job, but it's like on his birthday, on too? his birthday today, he better. Yeah. No. <laughs> um, but it's like such a loving thing that he does for me that he doesn't have to, but he's like, making sure my needs are met and I'm cared for. And I try to do that with laundry. I'm not, I mean, we find it's better if I don't touch the machine because I mess up the settings and I break it, but I'll move the laundry over or fold sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so that's the concept, this idea, this willing, sacrificial life, this, this willingly laying down our interests, our own self-interests for the interests of, of the other. Okay, so that's Paul's address to the wives. I want to look at what he says to the husbands. And, and, and again, Pay attention to the, the departure from the normal hierarchies in this. He addresses wives, then husbands. He addresses children, then fathers. He addresses slaves, then masters. It's all a reversal of the normal hierarchies that would have been in place so there. So Paul addressing the women first isn't like, I'll start with you because you have the most work to do. No. <laughs> it's no. actually like a compliment. It's like the first shall be last kind of thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the whole idea. And that is supposed to help us connect this whole thing. See, the Bible is not just a bunch of compartmentalized, like, fortune cookie things. It's all a thematic thread all the way through. This idea of sacrificial love, of laying down our lives for the other, connects it to the thread that runs all the way through. I will calm down now. <laughs> okay, uh, so let's, uh, verse 25. He says, for husbands, this means love your wives, just as Christ loved the church, and he gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, 
She'll be holy and without fault. In the same way, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds it and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we're members of his body. As the scripture says, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it's an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Okay, so where Paul addresses the wives in two short verses, uh, he, he gives this terrifyingly long address to, to the husbands, elaborating on the, how we're going to fulfill this challenge of mutual submission that was there in verse 21. Now, he doesn't use the word hupotasso here, but it's under that header. So instead, he describes the husband's submission in this relationship as loving his wife. And that is profoundly unique because as Professor Timothy Gombus writes, a command for husbands to love their wives is a command that appears in no other contemporary household codes that were written. In other words, no other contemporary author with Paul ever told husbands to love their wives. So saying, telling husbands to love their wives was not a normal part of that society or was not considered a, like, because today if you said, hey, love your wife, that's not like... Everybody thinks, yeah, yeah, yeah of, of course. course. Tell me something I don't know. But you're, but you're saying that wasn't happening at that time. So I'm, so I'm not saying it didn't exist. That's not to say that, you know, a husband didn't love his wife somewhere. But that is not the structure around which the home was built in the ancient world. It wasn't like in our world today. It didn't have any romantic comedies or anything like that to, to guide us or to lead us. It wasn't the basis of the structure of the home. The home was built around the hierarchical order that was there, and love didn't actually factor into it. And not only is the challenge to love the wife, but to love the wife as Christ loves the church, which brings this into another dimension entirely. He goes into the sacrificial way in which Jesus loves us, giving up his life for us and this is an analogy that is so profound and it completely scrambles, as I've said multiple times here, our normal systems of power and authority and of honor and, and shame. Because think about this, so far in this letter, in chapter 2, verse 6, Paul has already told us God raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. In Romans chapter 8, verse 17, Paul wrote, and since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. Christ elevates our status through our relationship with him. He draws us up to him. We are co-heirs with him. We are sharing his authority, which he freely gives to us. In other words, Christ is not a top-down ruler where everything works for the benefit of the one at the top of the hierarchy. He is a ruler that elevates others and draws us up into his transcendence. So by inserting Christ into this issue of headship, Paul is making a profound point. He's expecting us again to put this together, what it is that he's saying that, that anyone in traditional positions of power are to share that authority and status 
with the ones that we're in relationship, providing them freedom and elevation that is comparable to what Jesus has provided to us as the church. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) So to apply this to where we are today, we could say that anybody married or not married, man or woman, you know, but anybody just holding a position of power in the world that we live in today, any type of traditional power or hierarchy, living in that hierarchy, we're called not to ignore that hierarchy or that power, pretend it doesn't exist, but to use that power to benefit others and elevate them and bring them up. Yes, exactly. Exactly like we see Jesus do. Exactly what we saw him do all through the Gospels. Exactly what we see happening and unfolding all through the book of Acts and all through the New Testament epistles. In fact, here's the thing, and I'll tell you, once you see this, you can't unsee it. Uh, uh, New Testament scholar Dr. C.L. Westfall pointed out that Christ's love for the church was illustrated by describing domestic chores that were normally assigned to women in that day. Giving baths, washing with water by the word, doing laundry, providing clothing, uh, spot removal, and ironing. All, All of these things that were normally associated with domestic duties within the home. And I'm telling you, I have read this thousands of times over all the years that I've been reading and studying the scriptures. I never saw that before. I never put that together. Paul is telling husbands to love their wives by serving their needs, and then he breaks down the long-held distinctions between the husband working in the honored, high-profile public positions of work and the wife doing the low-status domestic chores by assigning lowly domestic chores to Christ and in the bounce back to the husband. As to love your wives as Christ loves the church, so must husbands love their wives. <laughs> it's got real quiet in here. Did you notice that? <laughs> As you're saying this, I'm remembering the verses of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Um, you know, something that I think you've said not even the servants at that time did was no. wash their feet. So that lowly, humble service to one another. And I'm picturing Jesus leading the way for everybody by washing feet, leading the way through this most humble service and calling men to follow his lead. And not just the men, but women too. Right. And I think... I don't know, sometimes I think about that desperation I would feel as a woman to feel included with the leadership in Christianity. And here Paul says, yes, you're included too. You're also invited to wash people's feet. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's exactly right. He's, see, he's not reinforcing the hierarchy, the someone at the top. He's bringing yeah. us all down to the same level of service and love that Jesus operated on. And this also helps us then to realize that like when it comes to these you know, things that we hold as distinctions of duty or whatever, they're irrelevant in the kingdom dynamic of living sacrificially for, for each other. Yeah, and I feel like with Paul breaking this down, I can see how this works no matter where we find ourselves in our societal structure, wherever right. we're placed, because I think there can be this tendency of, I could do great things if I wasn't held back by the culture or by my situation or living situation. You know, I could, those are the things, those are the reasons I can't do great things. And here Paul is saying, escape that or not, there are feet to be washed exactly where you are. That's right, that's right. And that's what we're looking for, the yeah. feet to wash, right? Yeah. <laughs> so when I was in the crazy church, and if you don't know what I'm talking about when I say that, I, 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 my formative years in Christianity were spent in an in a independent, charismatic church that was highly legalistic and, and problematic on a lot of levels. But one of the things that we did there, man, we stringently held 
to this passage as being, you know, this is the way, this is the divine order for the home. And in fact, it got really detailed about the roles that you played and the things, that, the duties that were assigned to each gender. Like only wives could cook or, or clean or, or do things like that. But, but the trash had to be taken out by the men. Uh, that's, you know, that was, that was the job. Men Descri did the trash. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> I like it. I, down to the point where the preacher at one point was saying, I passed by sister so-and-so's house and she was taking out the trash and that was a terrible thing. And, you know, oh. publicly shaming uh, the person. It was... Well, now it I feel was, bad about my joke. I'm yeah, sorry. well, it was crazy. It was, it was crazy. Well, you know, we, so we, you know, we bought into this. That meant the husband was the only one who kept the family budget and handled the finances and the financial decisions. And, and so if you know me at all, you know my relationship with numbers. Like my, my son Daniel has said before, I, my, dad doesn't even like to hear numbers said out loud in case math is going to break out. And he's not, he's not wrong uh, uh, about that. So listen, in, in the first years of our marriage, I valiantly tried to, to handle the, all the bookkeeping and all the bill paying and everything that, that went along with that. And I, you know, I can confidently say that I almost sank us be, <laughs> because numbers. And one day I was struggling to make sense of how to balance a checkbook, something I'd never done prior to that. And I was praying. I was just like, God, please help me do this math problem because I don't understand this at all. And I really felt like, this is years and years ago, God dropped it in my heart. You know your wife trained as a bookkeeper. <laughs> and that's all it took for me. I just gathered up all the receipts and everything, and I dropped it in her lap, and I never looked back. Never, she's never offered it back, but for good reason. But my point in bringing that up is, is look at the pressure that, that we created by making a code and a set of rules out of what it is that Paul was describing here. God had to break into my thinking just to, to get me to see something I should have recognized just by observation, her strengths and my weaknesses and vice versa, those kinds of cooperation. The whole codification and hierarchical order actually undermines the original conceptualization God had for marriage of one flesh. Uh, it, it, it was always meant to be a partnership. It was never meant to be a hierarchy. Well, that makes sense because if you think of it as one flesh, there isn't really a hierarchy within yourself, right? Like as Janelle, there's not a full right. hierarchy that exists within me. Correct. So if we think of the relationships as one flesh, then that would be impossible to have a hierarchy. Exactly. Right? Yeah. That's why Paul even points out the husband sees his wife as his own body. There's no inherent hierarchy within our bodies. You may say, well, the brain has higher function, but my brain does not say, I don't need that hand anymore. I'm just going to put it in the drill press uh, for a little while. We don't think like that. We're, we're unified. We're whole. Our whole body works in concert and partnership with every other part uh, of the body. So in my thinking, no matter how people uh, order their homes, looking out for the other's interest of loving sacrificially is what universally applies in, in what we're to take from what Paul is saying here. So it could be that a home is structured the way that we saw earlier, kind of on the screen, where the husband maybe does have yeah. more of a say or in the, more of those traditional roles that you see in Christianity or in culture. And it could be the other way, like both are okay. Yeah, but what's the goal? What's the, what's the operating so, so force? So both are okay and both are good as long as the goal is to maintain 
living sacrificially for the other person, making sure we're caring for their needs and those needs are met. Exactly. So, I mean, listen. That, that's the motivating force. That's the motivating force. So a household could be set up in a way that doesn't seem traditional at all. Maybe the roles seemed reverse from the order, older norms. That's fine, too, as long as we keep in mind that, that mutual submission and caring for the other is the motivating force in this relationship. If we're desiring to follow Paul's commands here and reflect Christ's values in, into our homes so that both parties then get drawn upward into this equal positioning and status before Christ, uh, drawn upwards and also brought down to that place of service as Christ is at. So the goal is to look for each other's strengths and reinforce those, uh, just as Christ does with us. And equally, it's to recognize where there's weakness and then in love, cover over those and, and overcome those as a partnership. No matter what form the family takes, the Christian principle that comes to bear is this. We are called to sacrificially serve the other in our relationship. And, and even beyond that, Listen, not everybody here today, I realize, is in a family relationship, you know, traditional or otherwise. It doesn't make all of this irrelevant because this applies all along. It applies across the board to any relationship we have where we're working in close proximity to another human being. Paul was addressing families, I believe, because it was a major part of the makeup of the Roman Empire. But, but the concept of mutual submission by serving another's needs is applicable to our neighbors or our co-workers or anywhere where humans are having to interact and work closely together in a relational way, uh, wherever it's needed. Well, I like that clarification because it's not like, well, as long as I'm nice to my husband, I can be mean to everybody else. <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> just, exactly. Just to confirm. Okay. <laughs> and so Sorry, you don't get the, out of it that so, way. But this works for people, you know, who are married or not married then because this is supposed, this is kind of the ideal for the foundation for how relationships are set up and built. In, in the kingdom of God, yeah. it, when we're reflecting Christ's values, then this is the way it's going to be built on mutual sacrificial service uh, to the other. Uh, uh, all right. I know we're keeping you long. Let's keep reading here, Paul. Let's see what he says when it comes to children, which, again, the mere fact that he's addressing the children is just scandalous. It's just incredible. Elevating their stat status within the kingdom uh, and value. So he says, children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. He's quoting from the Ten Commandments. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you. You have a long life in the earth. And then this part is amazing. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up in the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord, a clear contrast from the instruction that comes from the Roman culture or empire. Uh, but this is, you know, again, it's straightforward, but it's scandalous stuff in what he's addressing here, bringing these principles of self-sacrificial service into the family, into the child-parent relationship as well. Because... I mean, kids are always, you know this, you're raising kids. I'm sitting beside someone who I raised. So, I mean, you know, they're always pushing boundaries. They're always testing. And that's all right. That's a natural, normal part of things. You have to learn uh, who, who you are, your strengths and weaknesses. But if the child understands their place in this is to, to love sacrificially, it can change the dynamic and decrease the potential ha tensions within a household. And again, in the ancient world, no one was telling fathers to be mindful of their children's needs or, or to treat their children in ways that were, were careful and, and encourage them 
an instruction in the Lord, something other than the Roman Empire, that it was not happening. Children were property until they became a certain age. And then you could deal with them by training them how to keep the family hierarchy going. But that was, was it. This was scandalous stuff Paul was saying here. So I hear what you're saying here, and I like it. <laughs> it sounds good. I mean, the whole thing, the family dynamic of talking about the Roman times of, of being forced to use manipulation in order to get your needs met. But like letting that go, setting that aside, and an entire family embracing this self-sacrificial love. Like I can, right. I can picture this from the greatest to the least, all working together to share God's love relationally. And I can picture this matching the idea of heaven on earth and even matching the idea of like paradise back in the garden of God's original intent. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so that being said. <laughs> um, oh, here's the other shoe. Okay. Okay. Just be, I'm just going to be honest, and that is my concern would be for somebody in a relationship where somebody's taking advantage of that kindness, you know, where they find themselves, you know, whether it's the husband, the wife, the parents, somebody taking advantage of somebody's kindness and desire to live self-sacrificially. What would you say to that person? Okay, so it's a great question. It's a, it's a really relevant question uh, and one that's really relevant within the church that we do have to address. One thing that we have to remember is that Paul is writing in the ideal here, in the ideal sense where both parties are practicing this. Both parties are, are working towards this goal of mutual sacrifice. If both parties are seeing sacrificial love as the goal, uh, you know, then that's great. If both parties are not, this is not going to work. This is not, it's not going to, you know, they're not going to experience this paradise on earth like you're describing it there. So in that sense, we have to be honest about scripture and about these, these challenges that are made to our lives and realize that these are our ideals. And there's a lot of ideals that are represented in scripture that we don't always experience, right? I mean, we know that from our own experiences. Uh, experiencing the ideal and knowing what the ideal is are, are two very separate things. Uh, and so maybe there's an unbeliever in the mix, or maybe there's someone who, who just personality-wise uh, is oblivious to how it is that they're treating the other person uh, or exercising power over the other person. Then we have to realize that these things in practice are only going to work if both parties are, are attuned to them, if both parties are participating in this. And if that's not the case, then there is nothing wrong. And, and I want you to hear me say that. There is nothing wrong with setting up practical boundaries that prevent us from being abused. We, you know, there's no, no, nothing in the scriptures tells us to go out of our way to, to be abused. But in our hearts, right? In our hearts, where it all comes back to, there is still a willingness to love and serve. That doesn't mean you have to put yourself in a problematic situation and suffer unnecessary abuse but in, in your heart, prioritize a desire to love and serve where it's safe to do so, and then forgive as needed. I mean, you know, we cannot control how the other person treats us, but we can control our heart towards that person and how we treat them in return, right? So, so all of these things that we're describing here, these are in the ideal, and, and keep that in mind and be prayerful about that as we as we approach those those things. I think that makes sense, and thank you for clarifying that for me. Um, <laughs> I feel like I'm probably going to get these uh, get these verses as well as I'm going to get. 
Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I understand them as well as I'm going to. Is there anything else that you want to add no. to it? I think this is a good stopping place. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you, know, uh, you know, we've got a lot to take in here and consider. I've made the point before. I'm not telling you how to interpret this. I'm telling you how I interpret this. And I'm asking you to pray about it and see if the Holy Spirit will lead you in the same ways. I, I, I you know, I, I'm passionate about it and I've taken my time to look at it, but you know, again, everybody's going to be have to be led by the Spirit. I'm not the arbiter of truth. The Holy Spirit uh, is. Um, we're not going to go over the last few verses. We covered that last week, so I'll, I'll refer you back to that teaching as he touched on the other more controversial subjects. Um, so uh, thanks I, for listening <laughs> to this conversation. I feel like one thing I can learn from this is that if we're finding Scripture or Bible verses that are not seeming to line up with the flow of the rest of Scripture, we don't have to be afraid to admit that. Like, we can be honest about our concern and maybe dig deeper and learn to understand it or the context a little bit better. I'd, I'd actually say that when we find things that seem contradictory or don't line up with the rest, that's a stopping point. We're supposed to stop there. That's important for us to stop and look at that and begin to examine it and see how we can be led to the place where these things work together in harmony. We'll usually find it. Not always, but usually we'll find it. I love that because this now this interpretation lines up, I feel like, with the rest of Scripture in, the, in a way of like going back to Genesis and the idea of one flesh and the sacrificial love Jesus describes. Right. And then also the other parts of Scripture where Paul talks about people, everybody being equal, like at the foot of the cross. Yeah, right. Right on. Yeah. N there is neither uh, Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. Paul brings that great equality there to us. So, so. Uh, that's, like I said, a lot to chew on. Let's, let's set out to embrace this life of sacrificial love and service to others. Let's see what God will do in the world in which we're placed if we live out these values and, and, and embrace this in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, uh, everywhere where we find ourselves. Right on? right on? All right, very cool. Well, if you'll stand with us, we'll close with a song. Father, we just thank you so much for what it is that you've provided for us in instruction. And Lord, um, I, I recognize and I realize there are a lot of different views and opinions, but I believe all of us can come back to the reality of what it is that you've done for us. The supreme example of love that was revealed in you laying down your life and dying on a cross for each and every one of us. And so I pray, Father, even if we have disagreements or different points of view, that that same love will cover over those disagreements. But I pray also that you guide us and lead all of us into this kind of life that you've, you've called us to, where we do represent the reality of your love for your beloved human race, that we reveal it first and foremost within our homes and then everywhere where we interact with other human beings made in your image. I pray that this becomes our reality in how we live. 